0: Welcome
1: to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. Celebrating the value of silence, listen to author, dancer, poet, and a winner of the forward prize for the best first collection, Tishani Doshi, explain her new dance centered on her book, Small Days and Nights, followed by a chat with me about straddling the world of words and dance, and the discipline of writing six books, all completed with a beautiful reciting of her ode to Patrick Swayze. Good evening, everybody. A very warm welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place. My name is Lucy Hislop, and I'm lucky enough to curate a series of events that bring interesting and interested people together, which is why we are thrilled to have Tishani Doshi here. She is the Forward Poetry Prize winner. She was long for the Orange Prize, and author of six books, including Tonight, which is Tonight's performance, which will be Small Days and Nights, which is just a terrific, terrific read. If Heckfield is a sort of series of serendipitous moments, connecting through sort of happenstance with people that you really feel you should know or get to know, or people who know people who know you, then Tishani, for me, really is a high point. When I first started, our general manager, Olivia, slipped a copy of one of her poetry books called uh, Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods into my hand and couldn't stop reading it. And virtually the next night quite unrelatedly in a bar near Dublin I was introduced to to Tishani Doshi. So how that happens is extraordinary. And now a year later here we are in this incredibly intimate setting with um, the opportunity to see a very beautiful performance of Small Days and Nights, uh, a very special night and Yes, I feel incredibly excited (laughs) about tonight. I'd like you to give a very warm, Heckfield welcome to to Tashani Deshi.
2: Hello, everyone. Hi, thanks, Lucy. That was lovely. Um, It's so wonderful to be here um, in this beautiful place to present my new work to you. Um, I thought I'd just uh, contextualize it a little bit before I begin um, and try to tie it into the idea of stillness that uh, Lucy was telling me is the code word for the month. Um, Eight years ago, I left the city of Madras um, to live in a fishing village with my husband on the coast of Tamil Nadu in Southeast India. I had grown up in the city of Madras, now Chennai, which is a city of 8 million people. It's a seaside uh, city of comings and goings, but quite slow-paced and less glitzy compared to some of the other Indian metropolis like Delhi and Bombay. And one of my sort of uh, best memories growing up was to drive down the coast and to swim in the Bay of Bengal and to have these isolated beaches where no one was on and to be there with my family and swim and just have that salt and wind and sand. Um, And as time went on and the city grew, Um, it grew wider in both directions, and so you had to drive further and further down the coast towards Pondicherry to find these isolated beaches. Um, But they were still there, and I suppose I had always hoped or dreamed of living um, by the sea, by the Bay of Bengal, and it just so happened that my husband, who's also a writer, agreed to this idea, and and eight years ago we did that. I think it's it's somewhat anarchic and revolutionary to leave the city, and go to live in a small rural place when you don't have um, any bond that brings you there. Any, you know, you're not a farmer, you're not a fisher person, you don't have an estate of mangoes or something. And uh, definitely, all of our friends thought that we were a bit mad because the trajectory in India is to move from the village to the town to the city to the mega city, and it's very rare for the movement to happen the other way around. But we were looking for stillness and clean air and quiet being writers. And um, it changed our lives. We began to measure the seasons by insects, mosquitoes and mayflies and dragonflies and bees and wasps. We began to welcome certain creatures at certain times of the year. In February, it was the time of tree frogs and they would jump out from drawers. Um, We also had unexpected creatures like a field mouse in the washing machine and a a bronze-backed tree snake, not dangerous, hiding behind the cooking books in the kitchen, um, which was kind of terrifying. Um, So we changed our lives, in other words, and I suppose the biggest change of all is that we sort of got adopted by beach dogs, and at one point we had 16 of them. An army tragically reduced down to three, and what we would do is we would walk with our army of pariah dogs, and we would howl with them, and uh, these dogs are sort of half wolves, you know, very, very sturdy and resilient creatures and this howling with them was something so affirming. It was something so ancient, tying us to not just the dogs and to ourselves but to that landscape and so um, I knew I suppose that I wanted to write a novel set in that particular place and Small Days and Nights, which is my new novel from Bloomsbury, is set in exactly that landscape Um, but being a novelist of course and being somewhat um, uh, excited about the idea of tension and conflict, I had to add certain elements to it. Um, The book takes an epigraph from James Salter's um, A Sport and a Pastime uh, and it goes, um, it is in the little towns that one can know a country in the knowledge that comes from small days and nights. And I felt that so much of Indian fiction that was being published was about the urban experience. And I wanted to write about how remarkable this rural India had been for me um, as this kind of strange insider and outsider but also small in the sense of uh, domestic and women because my protagonist is a woman called Grace and she discovers, um, well, after her mother's death, she inherits this house on the beach and she discovers that she has a sister who had been institutionalized because she had been born with Down syndrome, a sister called Lucia, and she decides to go and live in this place with her sister One of the things I always thought about being there with my husband was, would I be able to live in this kind of wilderness by myself? And I suppose um, the novel was a way of trying to answer that question. It was also looking at the idea of danger. Uh, We all know how fragile um, coastal systems can be. And particularly our coast, we've had a tsunami, we've had floods, we've had a cyclone. There are always threats of a coal plant coming up further down the coast, the deluge of plastic, land grabbing. There's a lot happening over there, but I also wanted to write about inner dangers, the dangers of too much solitude that can spill over into a kind of crippling loneliness, but also the danger that a woman sometimes feels, whether she's in India or anywhere, if she's by herself, the idea of fear, whether it's real or imagined. So all of this come into the novel, and um, because I've spent many years as a dancer, I wanted to create a performance movement piece to accompany it, and so what I'll present today is a short, uh, about 20-minute piece uh, using some of the extracts of the novel overlaid upon music, which was composed for me, um, a kind of seascape, really, by a wonderful Italian percussionist called Luca Nardon, um, who I've worked with before. And um, in terms of dance, I suppose um, I am not really trained as a dancer, I did a smattering of it as a child and then in my teenage years I decided that I wanted to be the next um, Gabriella Sabatini and uh, tennis didn't really work out for me. But I returned to dance in my mid-twenties when I returned to India, and I met um, a woman who changed my life, really, a guru, a friend, uh, a a woman called Chandralekha, and uh, she was doing such interesting work using Indian forms such as yoga, but also um, Kalaripait, which is a martial art from Kerala. It's one of the oldest martial art forms, and it uses of animal stances and it has a very circular movement. Also Bharatnatyam, which is a traditional um, South Indian dance, which has terrific geometry and uses codified gestures and expressions. So Chandra was trying to um, take away the decorative elements and to down to the body and she was moving into a uh, great abstraction and I worked with her group for 15 years. So that's been I suppose my legacy. It's a sort of fusion of different Indian movements. And in terms of the ideas that I wanted to explore um, and that you'll see, um, I wanted to, to explore this idea of repetitiveness, Um, of the ocean, the waves, the constancy of it, how sometimes, you know, it becomes so unbearable. You want to lock up all the windows and just, switch the sound off and sometimes it's terrifying and sometimes it's a comfort. And also the repetitiveness of, um, of, the, of the sister who, who uh, also has is, is autistic and so repeats these movements with uh, hankies and socks. And, and I suppose the greatest idea was how to resist the mechanical and the robotic in all our lives and the sense of the difficulty of being a caregiver um, I didn't want to sentimentalize the experience. I have a brother uh, with Down syndrome, so I know what it was like growing up and you know, as he gets older. That relationship is a beautiful one, but it's also you sometimes want to break free from it and you want to sort of find ways in which to connect with the world. And I think that nature allows us this connection. It allows us to, to um, be involved in the act of nurture, Whether it's for a person or whether it's for a garden, you know, ten you know Planting tomatoes and chilies, and trimming the bougainvillea, and 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 picking flowers—that kind of uh, bringing us to the ground—in the way that I suppose the howling with the dogs for me is that greatest of acts that allows us to think of living in the world with beauty and grace. So um, I hope I'm I'm really pleased to be presenting this here tonight, and I hope. You'll enjoy it. This is small days and nights. All morning, I try to hold it. The desperation of a fly beating against glass, a dog's distant bark, the dull throb of a lorry winding its way up the hills. By afternoon, I think I've mastered it. Nothing the world offers me can be as complete or as full as this. When I step into the light I have no song for the stones no thought for the grass. I only want to remember this long road this steady pulse which feels like love so when evening feeds itself tonight clearing the way for frost or flood I'll still be left with this the bright suffocation of flowers the weight of the day's hours My sister Lucia, how strange it is to say the word, for three years we have lived together in a house without men. It is a large pink house with blue shutters and verandas and a garden set on ten acres of beach front land. I find my sister at the Sneha Center for Girls. It is November in Madras. Roads laid waste by rain. Mosquitoes vying for every inch of exposed skin. I think of my mother, my newly dead mother, who has bequeathed me land, a house, a sister. The irreversibility of having a child. This is what I think about as I watch Lucia trying to learn her ways. Teacher had already told me that Lucia loves cornflakes, that she loves Coca-Cola, chicken fried rice, finger chips, mutton fry, vanilla ice cream, car rides, train rides, horse rides, bike rides, Tom and Jerry, Shivaji Ganeshan, the color pink, afternoon naps, going to the doctor, swimming pools, merry-go-rounds, stuffed animals, parties, cinemas, dancing. I was learning that Lucia also loved to lie like a crab on her back, moving her arms and legs up and down rhythmically, her blouse sometimes rising to show the soft mound of her belly, that she could hook both ankles around her neck and swing from side to side like a pendulum, that when she got into her singing mood, she could rock and sing for hours. early days of discovering my sister, I kept looking back to scenes of my life, hoping for clues, openings, where she could walk through. But we will never sit in a room with our parents as a complete family. We will never know what those rhythms might have been. Our childhoods are consigned to a kind of captivity, forced to exist, in two compartments separate from one another. We are in the middle of January now, and the sea is settling into a hushed simmer. Fishermen go out in their catamarans early in the morning, their engines rattling like machine guns, low and wide across the water. The beach is a war zone, littered with carcasses of olive ridley turtles, caught in nets and discarded on the shore. Lucia and I go out on the beach with the dogs. They rush out of the gate and put their snouts in the air, sniffing to see if enemy packs are nearby. We charge after them, flinging our rubber slippers in the sand, feeling the scrub between our toes. The fishermen are out with their small cloth bags of tackle, casting and reeling, casting and reeling. They do not like the dogs and sometimes raise their hands to shoo them away. But they always smile at Lucia. Sister, they ask as I pass. I do what I always do when any of the locals try to speak with me. I pretend I am not from this place. I smile benignly with no sense that I have understood their question. I wave at them instead. And Lucia, because she is happy waves too. We keep walking till there is nothing but beach and casuarina, shell and flotsam. The dogs are manic, they bite and play, and I imagine because joy is tearing out of them, they turn to us and howl. Lucia and I do it too, raise our heads to the sky and howl, as if the sea was a window and we were climbing out of it. It is January in the city. We sit on a balcony surrounded by towers of concrete. Impossible to think that a sea breathes beyond. That animals and birds make their nests amongst these multitudes. One day, all this will collapse. The sea will rise and swallow entire suburbs Almost as unimaginable to think That this was once all paddy fields The nights were completely black And all you could hear were night jars and coils, The long, insistent bark of a dog tied to a post The house isn't the same without her It's as though I'm either too big for it or too small. It makes no sense to be living out there with the sea and those trees, all those pretty china plates and the crockery cupboard. For what? This is a scene from a long time ago. How many evenings have I spent on this railway platform, sitting on an overstuffed suitcase, slapping mosquitoes from my ankles? Vendors are pacing the platforms with carts of bada, milk and bananas, bottled water and magazines. It's as if they've been shouting forever, their voices billowing out from somewhere deep in their bodies. I keep craning my neck toward the direction of the train, but it does not come. The air is still, and I am fatigued by the pointlessness of all the moving around, all the dirty, ravaged, stray dogs.
1: We're going to take some questions if you've got breath for it. Yeah, sure. Are you sure? Mm. Well, and I'm selfishly going to ask the first one. Okay. Um, It's just always extraordinary to see you uh, on stage and to sort of think that, for me, there's the novel. (laughs) You know, it's so exciting. So, when did you know that that is what you were going to do to bring movement to your work? Uh, Maybe it's an obvious question, but I'd love to know.
2: No, I mean, I, you know, I worked with a choreographer for many years and I worked on one piece. This was her last choreographic piece for 15 years. So I started... When I was 26 and then for the next 15 years I worked and obviously it was a very uh, intense piece and my body changed and I was less flexible but emotionally I was able to inhabit that piece. And then um, after she died and, and we sort of finished performing it, I thought, oh, now I have to just be a writer again. And I didn't want to... Let go of, I suppose, the relationship to movement, to sort of having an interaction with the audience, to just, you know, inhabit this other uh, space that I had had for all these years. But I had never ever thought of doing my own choreography simply because I didn't have this classical training from dance from then, which I could spring out and say, okay, I'm going to do this. But it happened um, with my my collection, with Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods, this poem that I wrote, um, which I suppose was, was, you know, the title poem of the last collection, but it was also everything that I had been learning as a dancer. Uh, So everything was from the idea of the female principle, the idea that woman was the center of everything, and, and it was really this idea of divinity and goddess and all of that. And in the papers, I was reading these stories about... Rape and acid attacks and torture—the Delhi uh, bus rape that you must have heard about in 2012—and I was feeling this strange disjunction of what I was dancing and what was happening in the news. And I suppose I wanted to use some of the movement, some of the ideas from that into the poem because it had very much to be with what it means to walk around as a woman with that particular anatomy, you know. And then when I had the novel. I thought I'd try to experiment again, but the novel is such a different beast. It's, you know, it's even hard to talk about it and contextualize it at a book event to read a small passage from here or there because it's this huge um, undertaking as a writer and as a reader. You, you know, so a poem stands alone. So I struggled with it, but I was also starting a teaching job um, this semester, and I wanted to have. A creative thing that I was doing aside from the writing and teaching and so I was given a small room my friend Luca sent the music and then I sort of went through the book and I I tried to think about that idea of captivity which is why the arms are tied and trying to find your space in this particular uh, context of the caregiving um, and and also in in amidst all that danger
1: but it's a very brave thing to do because it's one thing as a writer to write a book and to put all your emotion and and everything in and then as you say to then put it on stage like it's just it's very it feels to me very bra- I mean, obviously, you took a few few of my moves there. But, um,
2: <laughs> well, look, it, I It's, I mean, it's brave. It's, it's incredibly brave to be a writer. I think it's incredibly vulnerable to create anything and offer it to the world. And so at one level, the feeling is that if you can send a poem or a book into the world, then, you know, why not? And I've always sort of considered these and called these experiments. Um, I think I see myself primarily as a writer. And so it's not that every time I have something, I'm gonna have a movement piece. But it's it's also just that I feel sometimes the inspiration and a great freedom to be able to interpret the words in another way. Um, and I suppose um, it's, it's something that I don't wanna lose, that sense of straddling that physical world of being a dancer and, and the world of words. And, and so I want to be able to try and marry them when possible, but obviously it's not always gonna happen.
1: But as you say, it—I it, mean, your movement is incredibly poetic, and poetry is obviously uh, at the at the heart for you. Um, novel, not so much. And you, I can't imagine too many. I mean, obviously, you have a background in dance, but I can't imagine too many um, writers suddenly being able to do such a such a
2: work. No but I know lots of writers who do carpentry and who have other things that they do very well and I think that that somehow complements this the writing. I definitely learned all of my discipline about being a writer from dance because for many years before I'd even published my first book I was dancing and I understood that you can't just call yourself a writer you actually have to say, you know, you actually have to write, you actually have to, that has to be your job, if you don't have any other job, you have to say, okay, I'm going to work all morning, or these are my office hours, and I think I had a romantic idea of, of what it meant to be a poet when I was in college, and I knew that I wanted to to be one, but I had no idea how to go about it. And dance really taught me that. You know, you can't show up hungover in the studio and expect to, to perform for three hours. You, you can't sort of, um, you know, and then there will be the days when you're not in it and it's horrible, but those days are as important. And that's all, you know, something that you can apply to writing, where you have to show up, you have to sit or however you work, stand, uh, slouch in bed, and, and just be with what you're trying to do for those few hours, and then maybe you get one line, maybe you have one of those magic days where you get many words, thousands of words, and and that's part of the process, and and for me, really, dance has helped me to to make that sort of, that understanding that this life calls for this uh, lifestyle, you know, and, and you kind of have to... Uh, figure out your own way actually
1: I think it just teaches us that you don't have to have just one you know one thing that you seem that you get together and that's all that you do and you're just a writer it's the cross-pollination aspect
2: yeah and in fact um so my teacher who I mentioned you know I was 26 when I met her she was 73 um we had a kind of wonderful friendship, which was like a love affair, you know. She was a, a a lover, a mother, a friend, all rolled up in one. She was this really important person, and she was a Renaissance woman. She wrote haikus. She worked with the feminist movement. She painted. She, you know, did little things here and there with film and dance. She left dance for 14 years because she got disillusioned with it. And she loved that I was a non-dancer. She would always introduce me as her non-dancer and it was partly I think because she felt she saw something which she created that idea that in the body um, there are many possibilities and she could sort of she started with a clean slate she didn't I didn't have to unlearn how to stand and sit you know Um, but also the idea that why Why must we be bracketed in one definition or the other? Um, why can't things speak to each other? All of us are, um, you know, affected by films we watch or maybe a painting that we see. And it's possible to draw from from things, whether or not we're steeped in that tradition, to use in our own work. So um, I think it's definitely something that has been very inspirational for me and, and I hope, yeah, this is part of the thing of why I don't want to lose it, you know?
1: I I think we all aspire to be Renaissance people. I think that's kind of absolutely key. Do you feel that you channel her every time that you perform?
2: Some of the things that I've learned, I try to remind myself, of course, she's been dead a very long time. So it's, you lose touch with, the you know all of those things and i've also moved quite away, um and and i'm doing a lot more writing um more ever than now but that sense of um yeah the the sort of joy of being in the world but also that She was quite hard, also, (laughs) aside from from being wonderful and lovely and inspirational. She could be really hard, and I thought that you you need that sometimes to sort of, uh, again, that discipline and that sense of making something important, you know, deciding that this is important enough for me to do. And I think sometimes there's a sense of wanting things to come too easily. And so this whole idea of stillness... I want to bring it back to that and the slowness, because uh, I've talked about Chandra, but I also worked with wonderful musicians when I was dancing. They they perform live, um, classical Hindustani musicians, and a lot about what I've learned from poetry and about time has been from them, because you know the whole concept of tempo of starting from a kind of womb music, of starting in a slow place, and then picking up and gathering speed, um, and then going to crescendo and falling away. I think sometimes we live in such a fast world now that we just want to be in crescendo mode all the time. And that's exhausting. And you know, so that's why it's always, I think, Chandra's reminder of slowness, the idea that you have to begin in that slow, still place to create to make anything and then not that I'm against speed but then you gather up the energy from that slow place and then you move into the world with it
1: i think that's why when you first see your performances there's there's a, there's this element of gosh you know what's what's this about you know there just is it's just a, and I, I don't know whether it's a british reticence or whatever but i certainly kind of had that moment of well oh, you know what's going on and uh, i think that's fair enough to say, isn't it? That, that uh, then you do, I find you slow down and then you feel, you just feel it. And then, as I said, I didn't want it to end. So that's how it.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's what she, she also um, used to like to have that stilling moment of when the audience comes in from the outside with everything that they carry and not to be in a complete entertainment mode straight away, but to sort of force Um, the stillness is not always going to work of course but the challenge is there to to force them and she always said you know i don't want people to lean back and watch i want them to have their spine up and leaning forward and so there's a sense that maybe the body is capable of creating uh that in the movement and and yeah to have some confusion to say well what's this all about i mean it's just like uh Usually, you know, uh, when we, we would do this performance with two dancers, uh, with, with uh, you know, beautiful lights, and sometimes you would just see an arm or a leg, and it was very slow, and, you know, you thought it was really testing, testing. But then it kind of goes into, um, into a different um, place, you know, and I think you cannot arrive at that place without going through that slowness.
1: They call it journey, don't they, in, in yoga? Isn't that, isn't that the perfect yeah. way? <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, I'm hogging, so I'm going to hand over to some people who might want to ask a question. Hi. I was just very interested in the music aspect. You said that obviously you wrote the book and then the music arrived. I take it there was a conversation, that yeah. kind of. But how much did the music, when you first hear it, marry to what your image of it was going to be?
2: Yeah, so Luca had done the music for my previous um, small piece. Um, and I sort of asked him whether he would create a seascape for me. And essentially, I just told him um, that I wanted it to to start slow, and then I wanted it to build, but he works with many, many uh, instruments, and he basically, and I told him how long I wanted it to be, and he he's in Italy, I was in Abu Dhabi teaching, he sent me the thing, and I said, okay, these bits I like, this goes on too long, can we, you know, so then we went back and forth a few times, and then he sent me um, the, the final piece, and then from that is the movement. Um, really. So I had in my mind something before the music came, but it changed once the music came, and really it was a sense of responding to what he created. So I suppose it's an element of trust in some way, it's collaborative, but really it's his music and it's, it's just that I trust him and I thought, well, I will, you know, get um, this seascape from him and then I will use my words on top of that and, and add the movement.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, two things. I just, they're more observations than questions. But when um, you were dancing, for me in the beginning, I felt this really strong um sensation of you being in the water, mm-hmm. almost swimming. And then as it moved along, all I could think about in my mind was this um, sequence of images that um, are embedded in my head of, when my son was still an embryo so mm-hmm. before and he was tiny and then he started moving and it felt like there was a baby in a womb and it was in captivity and it was learning to navigate it's mm-hmm. it, you know it's it's home and it, it, yeah I really got a really strong sensation but I just wanted to ask that you know somewhere like Madras I've, I've been to Chennai very briefly it's I couldn't breathe. It was just so claustrophobic. How how did you how did you find the peace to write?
2: I moved one and a half hours south of Madras. Yeah, <laughs> I moved away um, precisely because my husband and I are both writers and it's sort of the, the, the urban life in India is quite difficult um, just because of the sheer scale of people and yeah. the kind the sort of compression of land. And so um, we sort of moved out into this village that I write about, um, which is, you know, we, we are... We have one fishing hamlet on one side and another fishing hamlet on the other. And then there are a few sort of big city houses, beach houses, where the people come maybe twice a year or three times a year. And that's it. So it's very... isolated it's just him and me and the dogs basically and um, we we stay there until we start hearing the dogs talk back at us and we think okay it's time to go to the to the city now and to meet people and to connect with life because it, it's too much mm-hmm. um, but yeah the city is is a different thing and it's it doesn't sound so long, but one and a half hours is really uh, quite a distance from it. We have to drive half an hour to buy vegetables. We have to drive one hour to find a trash can on the on the road to get rid of our trash. So you're really we don't get any mail. You know, for a long time we had uh, internet very you know sporadically. If you stood at a particular place in the bathroom and waved your phone around, so we sort of went to really a kind of very rural place. And I was amazed that those places still exist in India because you're always reminded about just the sheer scale of people and, and the fact that there are still these pockets where you can have a quieter life. Thank you, Tishani. It was so beautiful to watch you. Uh, we've
0: sat in this room and heard many people speak or watch movies, or, but you transformed this space it felt like I was in a different place and not
2: in the screening room of Heckfield Place. Um, Now, I've been lucky enough to hear you and see you in other places, and I wanted to ask a selfish question and wonder whether you would recite one of your poems, because
0: I know you hold them on the inside, and wonder whether you would at least give us one.
2: Sure, sure, I can. Oh, no pressure, Olivia. (laughs) Um, well, okay, I'll give you some choices, so there is, um, Love Poem, Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods, or Ode to Patrick Swayze. Okay. Ode to Patrick Swayze. At 14, I wanted to devour you, the twang, the strut. The perfect proletarian butt in the black pants of you. I wanted a man like you to sashay into town and teach me how to be an aeroplane in water. I didn't want to be a baby. I wanted to be your baby. I wanted revenge. I wanted to sue my breasts for not living up to potential. I wanted Jennifer Grey to meet with an unfortunate end, and not have a love affair with a ghost. At 14, I believed you'd given birth to the word preternatural. So when mother came home one day, waving her walking shoe, saying, I lost my soul in the theosophical society, I wanted to dance as recklessly as the underside of that shoe. I wanted to be a pebble in the soft heel of you, to horse whisper and live on a ranch in Texas and love my blonde wife forever and have creases around my eyes and experience at least one goddamn summer where I could be like the wind, sexy and untrammeled and dirty. And it was only after I found my own Johnny and got rid of him Only yesterday, after rescuing a northern shoveler from crows on the beach, its broken wings squished against the crockery of my ribs. Only after setting him down at the edge of a canal where he sank into the long, patient task of dying, did I realize what I wanted most was to be held by someone determined to save me. Someone against whom I could press my unflourishing chest. Who would offer me not just the time of my life, but who'd tear out reams of his yellowing pancreas and say, Here, baby, eat. Um, well, um... <laughs> You kind of don't need to have a PhD in Patrick Swayze studies, but if you've seen Dirty Dancing, obviously it helps. Poor Patrick Swayze, who I adored for so many years, died of pancreatic cancer. And, um, you know, when I was growing up in Madras, I think I saw that film 40 times and I knew every word. And it was like, I don't know, a way out somehow. We'll make sure we get that on when the next time you come. No, I read have, it. I read yeah. it in a, in a bar in Kuala in uh, Georgetown in Malaysia recently, and people were much younger. They had no idea who Patrick Swayze was. I was horrified. I thought, oh, I'm <laughs> not speaking to my age group. You know, I think you're <laughs> quite safe tonight. Um, <laughs>
1: we've got one more question.
0: Um, oh. Thank you. That that That's beautifully timed. I just want to say thank you for reading the poetry. Um, I came to you as a poet first, and I'm ashamed to admit I haven't read any of your prose. I obviously will after tonight. Was it a natural transition to you to move from poetry to prose? Mm -hmm. And do you find yourself dealing with different subject matters?
2: So a lot of the writers who I really admire were poets who then moved to fiction and who sometimes write both. Um, Margaret Atwood, Michael Ondaatje, Wole Soinka, John Burnside, who writes both poetry and fiction and nonfiction and everything else. Um, I just think that uh, there is a way that you can have a sort of, so poetry is my default mode. I go back to writing poetry or I'm always writing poetry. But then when I'm writing a novel, It sort of takes a different uh, level of, I guess, involvement just because it's such an ambitious project and you need to burrow into this tunnel and stay there for a long time. Um, I didn't, I don't, I mean, there are things that you have to deal with, I suppose, in terms of how do you structure things, how do you deal with time in the novel, things that you, you sort of, I guess, learn as you go. But when I wrote my first book, i was i was really struggling to get it done and i remember the editor saying Do you know Tushani, it's okay to just say a hey, got up to open the door it's fine you need to get from one point to the other just say it and i'm being a poet sometimes you're very involved in language and you want to Say everything in a particular way, and narrative sometimes just needs to move. So you you have to sort of balance between those two things. But I don't think um, that they that they can't work together. And in in terms of this book and my last poetry collection, I worked on both of them while I was living in this house on the beach. And a lot of the things are the same things. It's about coastal life, about the idea of you know um, thinking about. Um, the world and trying to run away from it and the world coming there and all of the stuff about, um, do you know, the the creatures and the turtles and the fishermen and the, the whole thing comes through in both those books. And I suppose I've also been preoccupied throughout a very primary question for me, which is what does it mean to be a woman living in India and how do I navigate that space? I mean, I live in that house with my husband, but I thought, could I live here by myself? Could I um, manage to be in this place without the presence of a man? And so I think in both girls and in small days and nights, there is really a conversation happening between the two and a lot of um, elements, dogs, dogs everywhere. <laughs> in the poems and in the novel, it's it's inevitable.
1: Tashani, hi. Um, <clears throat> it's very clear from your opening discussion before we, before the dance and, and and the reading of what inspired you to, to write the book. Um, uh, and it's uh, it's a place between Madras and Pondicherry that does sound quite remarkable. And what a wonderful place to go and read the book. But what actually inspired you in the first in the very first instance? To write your first book or your or your or your poetry, but what brought you into that?
2: I was um, studying in America. I went there as an undergraduate, and I was studying business administration. I'm half Welsh and half Gujarati and a very strong work ethic which comes from the Gujarati side and the Protestant side as well and I thought this was a useful thing. I was good at it. I was taking classes uh, in economics and accounting and statistics and then I took a creative writing course in my third year and I discovered contemporary poetry and it spoke to me. It just did that thing that Emily Dickens said, it blew the top of my head off. I thought, I didn't realize you can do this with language. I didn't realize you could, you know, say things in this way. And it just sort of, I, I immediately abandoned um, the commercial path to becoming a banker or something like that. And I thought, right, I want to be a poet. And I then spent the rest of my life figuring out how to do it. But it was also just discovering passion, I suppose. And I had never really had anything in my life that I was that crazy about. And sort of once I caught hold of it, you know, I was 20 and I thought, this is it, I'm gonna do this. There's no no way that I'm gonna do anything else. And, and really the reason I could do it is because I, um, eventually after working in London for a bit, went home and I lived with my parents for about six years. <laughs> I had no money and I was dancing and I just said, look, I want to do this. It takes a long time to get there, but I know it can happen. I just need space. And so I I kind of had that that lovely, um, you know, kind of place to go back to. And I wonder sometimes what would have happened if I didn't have that, but I think you find a way I know lots of writers and lots of people who sort of abandon one life for another kind of thing and the point is to sort of make it work somehow, you know, and um, for me it meant going back to India because really that's the place of creative inspiration for me. I find the stories, I find the the people, I find everything there um, waiting to be told in a way and so like no other place the minute i'm in the airspace on a plane i start thinking of a poem or something it's just it it's something about that country which is home but also something that i'm continually discovering which i also feel very much an outsider sometimes
1: I hope you feel it in the airspace around Heckfield too. That would be that would be really. I've already
2: hinted massively that there should be a little writer's cottage on the ground somewhere. I think it could be a a very inspirational place.
1: (laughs) Fantastic! Um, Can you all join me in thanking you so much for such an absolutely brilliant, brilliant evening? Thank you, thank
2: you all so much. Thanks, Lucy.
1: That was an episode of the assembly at heckfield place podcast you can find out more about the assembly by visiting the heckfield place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at heckfield underscore place on instagram heckfield place on both twitter and facebook and the hashtag heckfield place thanks for listening